Welcome to LCS Talks. I'm Berkeley Glazer, and I'm the principal of Langley Christian Middle School. Today, we are joined with Kevin Merchandani, who is a K-12 Director of Instruction and Christian Formations. Hello. <laughs> and we have Brenda Wind, one of our middle school assistant principals and a grade 8 homeroom teacher. Hi, everyone. Happy to be here. We're excited to be joined by our guest, Dr. David Smith of Calvin University. He's the director of the Kyers Institute for Christian Teaching and Learning. He is the editor of the International Journal of Christianity and Education. Dr. Smith has a background in modern languages, education, and theology, earning his master's in philosophy of education, philosophical theology from the Institute of Christian Studies in Toronto, and his PhD in education with a specialism in curricular studies from the University of London. Dr. Smith has spoken at previous Inspired Ed Christian Education Conferences in British Columbia. He is a passionate listener and Christian educator that has written prolifically about Christian teaching practice. As part of our LCS K-12 Bible curriculum process, we have developed training around formational Christian teaching practices. So we're excited to have Dr. Smith share with us today. Awesome. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your work. What brought you into this field of Christian educational service where you help Christian learning communities think about the intersection between faith, teaching practice, and learning? So I'm a native of the UK. Uh, I grew up in a family that was not Christian. I didn't have a lot of Christian background. And by the end of high school was an ardent atheist. I remember having big arguments with other kids on the school bus mm. um, about how stupid Christianity was. And uh, long story short, became Christian in my first semester at university and kind of expected everything would change. Like the big question for me was, does God exist? And if mm -hmm. God existed, then everything else followed from that. And I then spent the next few years um, in a, a pretty standard intervarsity sort of evangelical Christian fellowship kind of setting, uh, kind of learning how to be Christian. Went to a lot of Bible studies and prayer meetings and worship services and missions meetings and so on. And then a few years later, started praying about what I was supposed to do with the rest of my life and heard a very clear call into education, hmm. which sort of puzzled me because I realized at that point that I internalized a theology of vocation that, that was sort of along the lines of if you were kind of really spiritual and really committed, then you'd be a missionary to a country that didn't have electricity. Mm -hmm. And if you were like a little less committed than that, you could be a pastor in your own country because that was still like the gospel, but you got to have a car. Yeah. Um, and maybe a bit less spiritual than that, you'd be a youth pastor because that's like still the gospel, but with rock music yeah. and, and so on down the list. Right? And, uh, and that the helping professions were somewhere in the middle and then maybe like business and politics were somewhere near the bottom. And um, looking back, I don't remember anybody ever preaching that to me. I think I absorbed it through the practices in which I was engaged through what we prayed for in prayer meetings, what mm. examples were given in sermons, what stories were told in Christian books, um, just the, the culture of, of the Christian world that I was in. And so I found it quite hard to process when I realized that I felt pretty clearly called into education and that I'd been studying languages for years. So I was going to be a language teacher. I was teaching French, German, and Russian. I wasn't even something useful like a Bible teacher. <laughs> and um, so I started teaching and started out with just with this thought of what on earth does this have to do with my new Christian identity and calling? Right? I'm explaining French grammar to 12-year-olds. Um, it doesn't seem like a great contribution to the kingdom of God. And... Uh, but then gradually started to notice some of the ways in which my language classroom was ideologically constructed, that, that a lot of the textbooks we used were really built around a kind of individualistic consumerism. We spent a lot of time practicing how to buy things from German people, how to talk about ourselves, how to get hotel rooms and train tickets, uh, and so on. Um, every textbook I used had a whole chapter on how to complain, uh, usually connected with the hotel or the restaurant but never had a chapter on how to console or encourage, uh, as if somehow getting other people to give you what you deserve is a more mm. basic language function than using language to build other people up. Mm. So I just started realizing that the way my language classroom was constructed was also telling a story, um, and that that story was in some tension with the way that I was learning to understand myself as a Christian. Mm. Um, and that really is a question I've been chewing on for the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sort of. What, what, what do those two parts of my identity have to do with each other? So this started as a very existential question for me. Um, just, okay, I'm called to be a teacher. This is what I do most of the week, right? You know, I get to go to church for like an hour and a half on Sunday, but most of the time I'm a teacher. 
And if I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength, right, you know, if, if that's supposed to be everything, well, most of the time I get to do that is while I'm a teacher, not while I'm a churchgoer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so how do I do the Christian thing as a teacher? What does that even look like? And that drove me back into graduate work um, because I started realizing that, you know, a few Bible verses and a, and a few sound bites weren't going to answer that question um, that I needed to actually study. And so that drove me into higher education and, yeah, for quite a while now, I've been uh, teaching at Calvin University, a Christian university in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, mm. um, and I've been involved in Christian education research and training teachers for some time. Mm. That's awesome. Appreciate you sharing a little bit about your story. I know your texts have had um, a pretty big impact here in BC. Um, we're familiar with a number of the ones that you've written. In particular, we'd love to look at on Christian teaching. And uh, that idea of, um, of practicing our faith, that idea of what uh, formational Christian teaching looks like. And so you share that um, there's a rich and interesting and important conversation to be had about faith and pedagogy. It goes beyond questions of worldview or perspective expressed in course content. It's not reducible to questions of character or treating students kindly. And uh, making headway with this conversation need not imply imposing a prescribed set of God-approved techniques. It needs to be a conversation because there's no simple formula for Christian teaching, nor should there be one. And I think that's a a pretty compelling statement for Mm -hmm. us as a Christian school thinking about that we cannot reduce Christian teaching just to a set of, of practices. And we have actually developed... Um, recently, this past year, our K-12 Bible curriculum, where we're trying to live out these uh, embodied practices, but these holistic community practices where we participate in uh, God's work of shaping our community at the same time as um, seeing how he brings out their unique giftings. And so um, we would love to hear some examples or stories of um, things that have come up in your book on Christian teaching. What um, examples could you share with us about Christian teaching practice that uh, um, would be helpful for a Christian community like ours to hear? Yeah, I, th- I think um, one, one story that's become like my, my go-to story when I have three minutes to explain to people mm-hmm. why what I work on isn't weird, mm-hmm. um, is uh, a conversation I had with a student at Calvin University a few years ago who was describing to me how some classes had started at the start of her semester. And she talked about a professor who he said at the start of the semester, the very first day of class, um, my professor talked about how we're a Christian learning community. Yeah. And, and that implies that everyone here is valuable, that everyone is important, everyone has been given gifts by God, each person's made in God's image. So, so it's really important that you all come to class every day because you've, you've all got something to contribute and you know, we, need to, we need to care for each other as a, as a Christian learning community. Yeah. And she said... Um, I hadn't heard a class begin this way before because usually what happens on the first day of class is the syllabus gets given out, we get, you know, the exam dates, what day the first homework's due. Like usually you don't learn a whole lot on the first day, but mm. this class we we started the semester talking about what kind of community we were. And she said, I found this kind of inspiring. This was this was sort of a different start to the class. And then she paused and she put her head on one side and she said, you know, it took me two or three weeks to figure out that it wasn't really true. Um, because the way that the class was taught, it made very little difference whether I was present or not. Mm. Um, the, the, it was, the teacher mostly lectured. The exams were based on repeating what the teacher said. So as long as I borrowed a good set of notes from someone, I didn't even need to be in class to pass the exams. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to share anything. Um, so in the end, it was just nice talk. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, this is one of the things that keeps me up at night, because when you when you build schools or universities and you start putting Christian words on them, you sort of make yourself publicly accountable mm-hmm. um, because your students start looking at those words and interpreting whether or not those words describe the practices that are going on that they see around them in the institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they don't, then they start coming to the conclusion that it's mostly pious talk, right, that the Christian bit is the talking bit. And that the doing bit is the school bit, mm-hmm. um, and that the talking and the doing don't have a whole lot to do with each other. And I, and I think that's a real danger because a lot of the ways we do school are, are not that way because we got together and reflected deeply on them and you know sort yeah. of worked them out from first principles. They're, they're that way because they, it got done to us that way, and this is how we learned to do school and a little bit of teacher education and a little bit of hit and miss experimentation and stuff that seemed smart at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that's 
similar how we build up school practices. Um, and then we put these Christian words over the top of them when we write mission statements and philosophy statements and so on, and that creates this huge potential for, for mismatch between the two. So if you flip that around and look at that positively, so does that now mean I can go to the New Testament and find the right way to teach so that my students will experience Christian community? Well, yes and no. I mean, the New Testament does say some things about community, and this is just one example theme. This is not the only theme in the Bible, right? It's just mm. one Christian idea. Um, it talks about the kind of community where you actively care for one another, where you don't just hang out with the people you like, where, where mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's based on, um, as the Westminster Confession puts it, um, having communion in one another's gifts and graces, mm-hmm. an obligation to care for one another's needs outward and inward, um, that's not based on favoritism. Um, but the New Testament doesn't tell me exactly how to do that in a science class. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's not like a Bible verse that's going to tell me exactly the, you know, how, to, how to translate that into a physics syllabus. And there's probably not just one answer of the right way to do that, because I'm always going to have a cultural context and different students, the students are going to be different yeah. ages, and so on and so forth. Um, so now I've got to start figuring stuff out. So now I start looking around and I see a teacher at a Christian school just down the road from me, about a mile from where I'm sitting. Physics teacher, um, she's got this practice of um, every semester she gets all the students' names, puts a student name on each day of the semester. Um, when that student's name comes up, on that day, they are responsible for the well-being of all the other students in the class. Mm-hmm. And she's got this explicit set of criteria for what that means. So it means if we're doing an experiment, you make sure that everybody else has got enough materials before you start your experiment. Mm-hmm. It means if a student's absent today, you are the first person to notice. You're the first person to contact them and find out if they need something. You get some notes for them. You welcome them back to class afterwards. You make sure that they've got what they need to catch up. Mm-hmm. And she's got a few other things. Um, so one of the things I kind of love about this is that Unlike just kind of creating like a, a teaching assistant or a classroom monitor or something, every student gets to take mm-hmm. turns being the person who's mm-hmm. responsible for everybody else's well-being. And every day, everybody else knows that someone who's looking out for the, the unanticipated needs of the community. And of course, the teacher also gets a TA, uh, which is a nice side benefit too. Um, now, does that mean every other teacher now has to do this? I don't think so. It's not like the Bible says that she has to do it that way, right? Yeah. But it also seems to me like an authentic response to what the New Testament says about community um, and trying to actually build a classroom that's not about I'm here for my grade and I'm here for my learning from the teacher and whether the person next to me lives or dies is none of my business, that's the teacher's job, mm-hmm. which often feels to me like like sort of the default ethos of a lot of schools in this part of the world, yeah. um, where I'm kind of here for my bit of learning and the teacher is the one who has to look after everybody else. Um, so you end up in that space that you described. You know, yeah. I think I think there are ways of teaching that are responsive to Christian commitments. I, I don't think they're the single right answer, or it means that everybody else has to do it exactly like that. But I do think we have a responsibility to figure it out yeah. um, in a way that works in our context. Definitely. So you're a language teacher. Uh, what examples come to mind uh, as you might encourage our language teachers K to twelve? Yeah, well, a really, really simple one. Continuing on the last theme. Um, I, I just mentioned a lot of my language textbooks focused on complaining and buying things and, and, and so on, didn't include any encouraging and consoling. Something I used to do in my beginning language classes was figure out ways of encouraging each other at the start of class every day. It's just a real simple move, right? Mm-hmm. We'd learn phrases like, oh, I like the sweater. Um, <laughs> or nice to see you today. And we'd spend a, you know, two or three minutes just circulating and doing that at the start of class. Mm-hmm. That's a really, really simple one. Um, a more complex one that took more time to live into was starting to realize that um, all of the human beings who were represented in my language textbooks, these people who spoke German or French or, or Russian, um, that typically they were either cartoons of people going shopping and going on vacation and going on bus journeys and so on, um, or they were stock photos of Germans standing looking awkwardly at the camera demonstrating the average number of children. Um, and I started looking at these pictures and thinking, none of these people in my textbook really seem terribly human. Um, they, this doesn't awaken any empathy. Um, I'm never finding myself looking at these pictures and thinking, I'd really like to get to know these people better. Hmm. And, th- and that got me thinking about, what, you know, what makes people human? What makes other people seem interesting? Well, it, you know, human beings are people who face moral dilemmas, who have doubts and fears, who suffer, who struggle with things, who have hopes, who fight for things, you know, who, who have beliefs and convictions. And none of those things were present in my textbook. I had these, these cartoon characters that went shopping and commented on the weather. Um, so I started looking for ways of changing the visual landscape of my language classroom using real black and white photographs of 
people in historical situations, using real stories from people, finding ways of, in simple language, getting at moral decisions that people have to take and not just how to buy bananas, mm. and starting to change the content of the curriculum in my language classroom with, with a focus on how do we actually learn to see people who speak other languages as our neighbor who is fully mm -hmm. human, who is fully made in God's image, who actually prays and weeps and suffers and hopes and doesn't just sort of, you know, go on vacation and buy things. Mm. And how do I do that in a language that's appropriate yeah. to, you know, <laughs> second or third year German learning? Yeah. Um, and that's a much longer design task, right? You don't solve that in 10 minutes. So, you know, that's something that I, that I worked on over a couple of decades. Um, so slowly I found it starting to change the whole learning culture of my classroom. You know, what questions I asked, what pictures I showed, what dialogue we crafted. Um, and, and it took time. I always tell people this is, this is a 10 year project, mm -hmm. not a, not a by Christmas project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually remember you spoke about that at our staff retreat, however many years ago. And our French teacher at the time was so compelled and moved. Um, by that idea, and she really embed that into her practice about we learn language to be hospitable and to love our neighbor. And then I remember a number of years later, she had a past student who reached out to her who said, like, I never really thought like French is going to be all that useful for me, but I remember you talking about this idea of being hospital and loving our neighbor. And he was a firefighter and actually was on a scene where there was somebody who only spoke French and she did not speak any English. And he was able to use his limited middle school French to be able to um, be hospitable and love his neighbor in a way and he just felt like he that like what he learned in middle school French kind of came out and shared that story with her so yeah that's a great yeah great idea there that's beautiful thanks for sharing that yeah um, I was actually sitting in my office a, few, a number of years back and I had a phone call out of the blue from a student who had been in my class three years earlier learning German never a great German student um <laughs> from, a, from a linguistic point of view there wasn't a German grammatical construction that he hadn't massacred at some point in, in his career um, but um, he was calling me from Germany, and uh, he was so excited he could barely get his sentences together. Mm. He, he said, "He said this morning I got on a bus and I had this long bus ride, and this young German guy got on the bus and sat next to me, and he was so depressed. He was just visibly dejected. Mm. And I remember you said in class that Germans don't talk to strangers as much as Americans do, but I figured I was a foreigner, I could get away with it. So I asked him how he was doing. And he told me that he'd just come from his workplace and he'd just lost his job hmm. and he was on his way home and he didn't know how he was going to tell his wife. And uh, and he said, and then I remembered what you said in class and I thought, oh my goodness, what did they say in class? Um, and uh, he reminded me that I talked in class one day, three years earlier, about how we're learning a language, not just so that we can say things to more people, but so that we can listen to more people. Yeah. Um, I asked my students to think, I said, has it ever occurred to you we always took, we ask people, do you speak Spanish or do you speak French? And not, can you hear Spanish or can you hear French? Mm. Um, and he said, I remembered that. So I just sat and listened to him for 20 minutes and let him tell his story. And he was so thankful that he'd had a chance to get it off mm -hmm. his chair. Mm -hmm. um, and I told him that I would pray for him. And I just had to come and tell you. And I thought, if I've got a student, and the thing that he's so excited about is that he has to call his professor from Germany, <laughs> is, is, is not that he went to the beer festival or the Reichstag or Neuschwanstein or something. It's, it's that he got to listen to an unemployed guy on a bus for 20 minutes then something mysterious just happened. Yeah. So, so I think these little acts of reframing can be quite powerful. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Um, in your book, you, you write a section called Bread Gardens Homes. Uh, this imagery is great to help us create community. I'm wondering uh, if you could continue to paint a bit of the theological landscape on this idea for us. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that part of the book is actually a, a little riff on another book that I wrote with some other people a few years earlier called Teaching and Christian Imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this is going to get I don't know, something I know Kevin wants to ask me about later as well. Um, <laughs> it's about long fascinating, like right. But, but Christians historically, um, quite rightly, have not only used the Bible to get teachings out of it, right? um, or to get doctrines out of it. Uh, the Bible also gives us a way of imagining the world. It gives us pictures for our minds. Um, so you know, when, when the Psalm says, "The Lord is my shepherd," right? Um, I lie down in safety in green pastures. Uh, that's not just giving you like a doctrine um, of, of God's providence. It, it's giving you a way of imagining God and a way of imagining the world you live in. Mm. It's meant to affect you on an emotional level. Um, it's meant to make you live differently because you live into this way of imagining what this universe is that you live in. 
And by the way, so I know this worries some people when I say imagining, I don't mean the opposite of truth, right? You need mm. imagination to, to understand true things, right? Mm. If I say to you there are black holes in space, you're using your imagination, that's a metaphor. You've never seen one. Mm-hmm. It's true, but you still need your imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, so I've long been interested in sort of what happens to other teachers when we explore that. Um, so Bernard of Clairvaux, going back a thousand years, he's got this beautiful sermon where he talks about teaching of breaking bread. Mm-hmm. When you come into the classroom, you, you've got this thing you prepared, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and you break it. And your students should be able to see Christ in the breaking of bread, like on the road to Emmaus, when, when Jesus broke the bread and they suddenly saw that it was him, because that's what Jesus does. He breaks bread, right? Feeding of the 5,000, the Last Supper. Um, and you've got to make sure everybody gets a bit. So if one person eats two-thirds of the loaf and somebody else goes away hungry, then it wasn't a good meal, right? And if a stranger turns up at the door halfway through the meal, you welcome them. To the table, and I've had conversations with teachers in a number of countries about just just imagining that through together. So the student who comes into your class halfway through the semester, right, um, and doesn't quite know how things go. You know, how, how do you welcome them into the meal, and, and how do you make sure that each student in your class gets to eat today, right, and, and that it isn't like three students who answer all the questions and one who never quite, you know, sort of got got involved. So to give you this little mental space to play in. Say, if, I, if I'm trying to actually enact hospitality with my students through breaking bread together, the sharing of communion, then what would my classroom look like? Mm. What things would I watch out for? What things would I be careful about? Right. Well, the, the gardens one is Alcaminius, one of my heroes, mm. 17th century bishop. He says classrooms, schools should be gardens of delight. Mm-hmm. And he gets that out of Genesis. Garden of delight is the literal phrase in the translated Garden of Eden. Eden is the Hebrew word for pleasure or delight. Um, so in Genesis, you get this picture of gardens as this place of beauty and generosity, but also where we get to make big choices. Um, and uh, But then later, Isaiah and Ezekiel pick up the Garden of Delight also as this image for the Shalom community, the place where there's justice. So in Isaiah 5, it, it, talks, it says, the men of Judah are the garden of God's delight when there is justice in place of bloodshed, um, when there's righteousness in place of cries of distress, so when there's inclusion. Um, later in Isaiah, it talks about us being a well-watered garden if we spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry and the oppressed. Um, so it's this very rich biblical image that, that has connotations of generosity and beauty and spiritual choice and commitment and justice and communal well-being. And Zinia says that's what a classroom should be, mm-hmm. garden of delight. So if I walk into the classroom with that picture knocking around my mind, it doesn't tell me exactly what to do. But it does give me some things to look for. It does give me some some concerns. And I, 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 since reading Comenius, I do this often. I walk into class and I think, is this going to be a garden of delight today? Mm-hmm. Um, what did I miss? Who's who's not who's not included today? Who's who's going to who's going to be offering me cries of distress that I might not hear? Um, or how? In what way did I make this beautiful? How did I make this more than just routine? How did I make this something that shows a little of God's generosity? Um, or how is this going to be spiritually nourishing, right? All of that sort of comes out of that kind of imagery. So I'm really fascinated by this process of us taking some of these biblical imagery, I- images mm-hmm. and just letting them live in our mind for long enough that they become things we can think with rather than just thinking about them. Yeah, I definitely I see Jesus embodying these uh, practices in his teaching. So, yeah, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. If I can ask a follow-up question with that. Um, sometimes at, with elementary, middle, uh, high school classes, you have classes where that seems really easy to do, right? To come in and it feels like a garden of delight. Um, They're able to jump into what you're talking about. They're eager for relationships. Um, It's a little bit more, yeah, doable. And then there's groups where that is a challenge, where you feel like you could do the same type of thing, embody those practices, and they're just hesitant or they are... Um, is a desert <laughs> the desert of maybe not even delight of despair yeah, yeah, um, yeah. what maybe advice or what would you have teachers think about who find themselves with those groups of students where yeah. they are struggling to find the delight or create even a garden like experience mm. so if I had a quick way of solving that you wouldn't be able to get me anymore from the <laughs> um, but, uh, I know <laughs> It's because uh, you know. I mean, one of one of the one of the beautiful variables of education is you're dealing with human beings. Yeah. And they're all different, and you, you don't own them. Right? You know, as Bonhoeffer says, um, your students are not called to be in your image; they're called mm-hmm. to be in God's image. Mm-hmm. 
mm. um, and what God wants to make them into, into might make you uncomfortable. Um, and uh, so, so there is this sense in which I think we shouldn't want to be able to completely control our students, that we should actually want to keep that sense of, of some of, of, of kind of, of difficulty, right? Because because if we control them, they will be objects, mm. um, and uh, they wouldn't be images of God anymore. Um, and they have their own responsibility and have their own dynamics. They have their own very complex life that's unfolding. Uh, and we get to walk that with them. So I think teaching is something you do with people, not to people. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having said that, I mean, I, you know, the only, the only answer I know to the question is to keep trying to patiently build, build practices that build in the right direction with lots of dialogue right? and with, with lots of talking about how it's going. Um, I know for myself, even at the university level, when I try to build collaborative practices in my classroom, sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. When it doesn't, we have more conversations about why we're going to still try to do this, even though it's not going well, right? mm-hmm. because, because this is actually what we're trying to live into. And, and in fact, even if we fail at it, that might be good learning. Um, and that doesn't actually mean that it wasn't a good thing for us to try to do. Um, it, it, but it, it does mean that we need to learn how to do it better next time. Right? Mm-hmm. And so. Um, and every now and then I sort of hear a surprising story of somebody who's trying something. You know, the temptation when somebody tells you something great that they tried and it worked is you think, okay, I'll copy that and then it'll work for me. Mm-hmm. And it probably won't. Yeah. But uh, a teacher in Tasmania sent me a beautiful email a few weeks ago, um, uh, elementary school teacher, talking about how she decided to get rid of the teacher's desk um, in her classroom. And she just had a seat with the students at one of their tables. And then she'd actually had the students design the classroom layout and where the teacher sat. And as part of doing that, she had, the students were actually thinking together about who needs to sit closest to the teacher and why. Um, and she just re- told this beautiful story of these kids, some of whom she said were struggling with bullying the year before, um, just sort of articulating to each other, like, who had which need, learning needs in the classroom and who needed to be closest to the teacher. And it was just very beautifully expressed. Um, I, d- I don't have the email in front of me, but... Um, but it just struck me as a great example of somebody yeah. actually saying, no, we're actually trying to build something here, and that's more important than whether I have a teacher's desk. Right? Yeah. So, so I'm actually going to try things that, that push in that direction and that force us to engage with one another. And that even with quite young students, get into dialogue with them about why we're doing it this way um, and what it is we're trying to get to. And I think sticking with that over the long haul will probably get you somewhere more often than not. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you shared an image uh, and it called it, and it all happens at once. And we <laughs> find that to be quite compelling. Um, there's much to be expected of and demanded of a teacher. Um, how do we weave together opportunities for students to learn in spiritually formative environments where they feel safe to risk speaking up in classes and explore those rich conversations about faith? Oh, not fair. I wrote a whole book trying to answer that. Um, <laughs> and you have three minutes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, part of what I was trying to get at with that was, was this sense that many of the, the models I'd seen for talking about Christian education, there was always this sense that it was like some of the time you were teaching math or teaching grammar, and then you would like stop and do this Christian bit, mm-hmm. right, where, where you would like do a devotion or, or read a Bible verse or, or, you know, say a Jesus thing, and then you'd like go back and it would just be teaching grammar. And, and you know, my sense is that that's not how it works. Right? Yeah. So all the time when you're teaching, you're communicating your value system, whether you're whether you're using Jesus' words or not. And so part of this is learning to pay attention to the whole fabric of your teaching and what messages it's sending. And so I think this is a way of growing as a teacher. I remember the first time I had a driver driving lesson. Um, I couldn't. I, I was in a stick shift car and I couldn't change gear and steer at the same time. And my instructor kept having to grab the wheel off me because I could only pay attention to one <laughs> thing at once. And by the, you know, now I can drive through busy intersections while listening to music and planning my class in my head and having a conversation with the person in front of me. Um, I, I've become able to pay attention in much more complex ways mm-hmm. to more of my environment. And I think that's how you grow as a teacher, is, is becoming aware of more of the complexity of your classroom. Um, so if I know, for example, that I've got to teach irregular past tense verbs in my German class, um, and there's just no way around that. Right? I've got to teach these, and they're boring, and they're not inspiring, and there's no cool way to learn them because they're irregular. They don't follow any pattern. You've just got to brute force memorize them. But what happens if I take those irregular verbs and I insert them into the middle of two weeks of learning about the life story of a 93-year-old German lady who lived through two world wars and was a refugee multiple times and 
who gave us family photos and recordings of her telling her life story. Mm. And I can say to my students, um, okay, here's some verbs that you've got to memorize for homework, and there is no interesting way to do this. You've just got to memorize these. And there's going to be a quiz tomorrow. But I really need you to know these verbs because um, Adeline, who we're learning about, is going to use some of them tomorrow to tell more of her story. And if you don't know them really well, you're going to misunderstand what she says. And that's kind of rude, so let's not do that. Um, let's make sure that you've got these down. That feels to me like a more compelling reason for learning irregular verbs than because it was done to me and I need to inflict the pain on you as well, <laughs> or, because I'm the or because I'm the teacher and you need to obey me, or because German grammar is in some mysterious way good for the soul. Um, it, it puts it back in a context um, that makes it part of a story that, has, that is communicating other meanings as well. So at one and the same time, I'm saying you've got to pass the German quiz, you've got to memorize German verbs, and you've got to learn to listen to other people's stories and be hospitable to them um, and put in some care so that you're able to listen well. So that, again, there's multiple lessons going on simultaneously. How do you get there? Uh, I don't think you get there by sitting on your own in your room trying to have brilliant ideas. If you like me, you have one good idea a semester. Mm -hmm. um, I think you get there by, by being in constant dialogue with your colleagues about mm -hmm. this. Um, I've suggested to quite a few schools that maybe instead of a PD day, um, covenant together in groups of maybe four teachers uh, to go to a coffee shop once a month for an hour with some ground rules. Um, no gossiping about students, no complaining about paying conditions, no talking about the administration, no discussion of politics. Um, all you're going to do for an hour is you're going to talk about the best thing you did in your classroom in the last month, the thing that was most consistent with your sense of mission, the worst thing that happened in your classroom, the moment when you didn't want to be a student in your own classroom, and, um, and what's the one thing you want to change in the next month. Those are the three things you're going to talk about for an hour over a coffee and a nice pastry. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to do it again the next month and then again the next month and again the next month and just see how far you get over six months or a year. Mm. Um, I, I, I think that's how it happens. I think it's, a, as I said earlier, I think it's a 10-year process, not a not a by Christmas process. Yeah. And, and it happens through the resources of Christian communities, through dialogue, um, through being transparent about what you're doing and trying to figure out other ways of doing it, not just settling for what you've got. I know we have a we have teaching teams in our uh, middle school, and so there's four of us. And our motto is like we're better together, just because on our own we're so limited. But when we take all of our ideas together and work on something, it's dynamic. So thank you. That's awesome. So I'm gonna uh, go to the blast from the past a little bit here. So when I was a student entering into university, I remember a particular moment where. There's either a, a grade 12 teacher or a post-secondary uh, professor of mine. I, th I think it was probably when I was entering into Trinity, now that I think about it, um, I'd probably come across your article, um, uh, The Bible in Education, um, in high school. But then it probably resonated with me, I think, early in my teaching journey. And I remember reading that thinking, this is where I think Christian schools need to be thinking about um, in their work ahead. So I had been a Christian school student, uh, grade 8 to 12, came across your article on the Bible and education, and I was really compelled by the different reflections that you offered in that article about how to think about the Bible. And I think before that, I'd probably had a pretty static view of the Bible taught us about doctrine, and it gave us the truth, and this is the way that we needed to follow. And, and I think you opened up um, that, that Christian imagination and um, a broader narrative of what scripture is about as well, too. So would love if you could just walk us through um, that article, just kind of in broad strokes, um, yeah. some of each of those different pieces. And then would love to ask you a few questions about that, because I think this is um, still a piece that is really important to, to BC Christian schools today. Um, and it's got lots of substance in it, too. So, yeah, if you can give us the the quick version of uh, that article and, and the, some of the highlights. It's, what, 20, 22 years old? You wrote it when you were... Yeah, that, that came out of work I did at the Stateford Centre in England with my with a great mentor of mine, John Short, um, who passed away recently. Mm. Um, and uh, we actually wrote a book together about it called The Bible and the Task of Teaching that's virtually impossible to get a hold of now, I think. But, um, uh, yeah, this really came out of just thinking, um, you know, people like to use the word biblical in relation to Christian education. Mm. And the problem is there are no schools in the Bible. Uh, like they didn't exist when the Bible was written. And, uh, and, and so that just creates some difficulties and tends to push people either to like their five favorite verses or, you know, the Deuteronomy passage about, you know, or raise up a child or, you know, there's like a few verses that you can sort of squeeze into maybe being about education. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and um, and also this tendency to mainly use the Bible as the source of ideas, right? So I can quote this verse to prove this. Uh, so we we spent some time exploring the how could the Bible relate to education? What are some of the wider ways in which um, you can get from Bible to schools? Given that you know there isn't an epistle that lays out a plan for schooling, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we we came up at the time with five five avenues, right? One, one of them is simply the Bible is one of the possible contents of education. Students should learn about the Bible, and that opens up a whole conversation about what that would look like and how should you teach the Bible and, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. Um, the second one is pretty familiar to most Protestants, and that is the Bible gives you truth claims. Um, so there are things that the Bible teaches about the world that, that Christians believe to be true, and some of those things might have implications for education or for science or for um, for literature or for sexuality or whatever. So you, you go to the Bible to sort of find out truth statements and then those give you your guide and you use those to think about the subject areas. Um, those two both seem pretty widespread and pretty familiar. Um, third one that was also pretty widespread was uh, what often gets called an incarnational approach, which mm-hmm. is that you, reading the Bible is supposed to make you a more virtuous person. Um, so you're supposed to acquire the fruits of the spirit. So you become more kind, more just, more humble, more patient. Um, and that makes you a better teacher, right? You become, you become someone who can live out the character of Christ in your classroom. Um, so this is like somehow the Bible impacts your character and the character of character impacts your teaching. Um, and then the last two were being less talked about at the time, although there was some stuff around. Um, um, I noticed that there was a whole discipline of narrative theology, looking at how you know most of the Bible isn't actually a theological handbook, it's stories. Mm. Um, and there are also narrative theories of curriculum, ways in which curriculum tells stories. We sequence things. Our semester tells a story. We use stories inside the curriculum. We tell the story of Western history, or we tell the story of the rise of science, and so on. So we're always telling stories through curriculum. And that Scripture is also a big story containing lots of little stories, and it has its own shape. It has its own way of telling the story of the world. So how do stories map onto each other? Um, how do you figure out whether the story of your curriculum sounds kind of like the story of the world told in Scripture? That was another one to, to explore. And the final one um, was about uh, the Bible as canon. Um, Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament theologian, especially has written about this in a book called uh, the creative word, canon as a model for biblical education. And he basically, in a nutshell, points out that um, if you look at the Bible as a book that is meant to teach the community of faith how to obey God, um, but not all the parts of the Bible teach in the same way. Uh, so the books of the law tend to say, thus says the Lord, do this or you die. Um, and whereas there are places in Proverbs where it says, go look at an ant and see what an ant does, right? And let's go explore creation. Or there's a place in Proverbs where it says, answer a fool according to his folly. And the very next verse says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Mm-hmm. And you're actually meant to go away and think about that for a while mm-hmm. because it doesn't give you a clear answer. And then part of it is poems. And then the prophets are always coming with this this wild imagery of like wheels within wheels and the stars falling from the sky and the moon turning red and the lion lying with the lamb and so on. And, and this is inviting you into imagining this radically different world. And so what if you actually think, well, you know, if God thought the Bible was okay for teaching the Christian community, then what does that model for us in terms of the range of ways of teaching? So instead of going to the Bible and saying, like, there's this one biblical way to teach because I found it in Deuteronomy, um, well, maybe actually Deuteronomy just offers one of the ways that the Bible teaches. Um, and maybe Isaiah actually has a slightly different one, and maybe Proverbs is a different one again. And so how do you put that together into a, a kind of canonical picture of what the Bible offers as a model for instruction? Mm. And if, if you actually, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you find Jesus doing that and ripping on all of those different modes of teaching. Mm-hmm. So within a few verses in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, um, not one jot or tittle will disappear, disappear from the law until you know heaven and earth disappear. Like, do it all exactly as it's written. And then a few verses later, he's like, well, you've heard it said this, but I say to you something different. Um, and then he's like, go consider the lilies of the field and the sparrows. And, and so you've got all these different different modes of teaching going on right within the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. So flash forward 22 years later, yeah. what might you add to it, revise, reinforce? If you were to write this up again, what would you say now, given your experience of research and working with Christian schools and education? Yeah. What would you say? 
Well, some of the stuff on metaphor and narrative, um, I continue to explore. We talked about that a little earlier with teaching the Christian imagination. Yeah. I probably want to talk a little more broadly about imagination rather than just metaphors or narratives and think about some of the different ways that works. The big area that I wasn't thinking about at all when we wrote the Bible and the Catholic teaching that I learned a lot about in the intervening space and written a couple of books about um, is practices, um, the, the Christian practices, right? The, the, I think even more than we managed to do in, in that work on the Bible and education, um, I want to emphasize that the Bible isn't just there to give us contents for our minds, um, even if it does that through narratives and metaphors and so on. Mm. It isn't just there to help us think in particular ways. Uh, the Bible is meant to, sh- it's not even meant to just shape it, shape our character in a general kind of way. Mm. It also gives us practices that, that when you read scripture, you find the people of God giving to the poor and celebrating communion and, mm. um, and praying and worshiping and breaking bread. And, and there are all these, but Christianity is defined as much by a set of practices as by a set of beliefs. Mm. Um, and so what does that mean for schooling? Uh, so what does the practice of hospitality look like for schooling? Um, hospitality to strangers. Um, or the practice of breaking bread together, or the practice of attending to the poor. Mm. Um, and I think that, that gives you a whole other avenues to explore because you have to start thinking about what makes something a Christian practice. Mm. Um, and, and the answer to that question is not quick or simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because it's not just be nice to people. Yeah. It's, it's a little more robust than that. And uh, yeah, there's a lot that could be said down that topic, but that's probably the main area that I've been thinking about since. Uh, that I'm still trying to articulate in various ways. It's sort of what do what do structured practices look like that are informed by the way Scripture thinks about human practice? Yeah. We definitely appreciate your conversations about the liturgies that shape us and yeah. how the, this reminds me of Deuteronomy and just write it on your door frames, mm-hmm. train up your children. And, and every parts, uh, every part of our space in our community could be formational to our community itself too. So I, I love that invitation to think about our practices formally. And then also what are the informal practices that uh, we just simply abide by some of these rules of, of belonging and and how can we bring them up into conversations for reflection so we can learn from one another? Mm-hmm. How are we doing for time? We're doing great. You still got a few more minutes? Sure. All right. Um, you've done a lot of work on shaping Christian communities in organization using uh, Bonhoeffer's uh, Life Together. Uh, can you share any examples uh, with us about how you've challenged uh, and encouraged K to 12 Christian schools in this? Yeah. Um and, and again, part of this is it, it just feels like a place to start, right? You know, Scripture talks about a lot of things, but I think sometimes rather than when you try to be Christian in this big general way, you risk missing everything by not aiming at one particular thing. Mm. Um, and so I've been trying recently to sort of say, what if we started from like this one New Testament theme and tried to actually kind of do that for a little while mm. <laughs> and see what we find? Um, and I think it then starts to, you know, I gave examples earlier about the science teacher who, you know, of all the students on a rotor for caring for others. Um, but it affects other aspects of what we do. Once you take this one idea and chew on it, I, I was invited a couple of years ago to go into a middle school locally that was trying to help their students think about all of the different ways that people did devotions personally um, and just trying to expand that for them. And what I decided to share with them um, was something that I've explored a little with my own students as well, was how... Um, this came out of reading Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer talks about how the Psalms historically have been used by the Christian church as model prayers, right? It's supposed to be the prayer book of the body of Christ. He says, if you're honest and you start trying to pray the Psalms and you don't go straight to your favorite one, um, but you just go through one at a time like you're supposed to, if you're honest, you will not get through more than half a dozen before you find one that you can't pray. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you don't feel like bashing the Babylonian babies' heads against the rocks <laughs> this week. Um, <laughs> Or, or, or maybe like you're feeling super happy and you get one of those totally miserable psalms. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you're super miserable and you get one of those annoying happy psalms with the timbrel and the lyre. Um, or, or maybe, you know, the, the psalm's going on about drenching your bed with weeping all night and that's not actually what happened to you last night. You actually slept pretty well. Because if you're paying attention, you will find you can't pray these. Um, now, when I first became a Christian, I, I learned a couple of strategies for dealing with that, I think, um, implicitly. Uh, one of them was just to skip to the promises and just read the nice bits and ignore the rest, um, which has the great advantage of making the Bible much shorter. Um, but um, it, it's also not a really great strategy for mm-hmm. reading of the scripture. 
And, and the other one was to spiritualize shamelessly and, and to sort of say, well, okay, I might not be surrounded by enemies seeking my life right now, but my appetite for chocolate cake is sort of like my enemy, so maybe I could pray about that. Um, and so um, Bonhoeffer says, no, the point is that these are the prayer book of the body of Christ, and you might not be experiencing what's in this psalm right now, but somebody else in the community is. You might not be being persecuted right now, but somebody else in the body of Christ is. You might not be weeping right now, but somebody else in the mm. body of Christ is. And you're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So when you get up in the morning and you pray the psalm and it doesn't apply to you, the point is that you're being asked to join in with the prayers of the, the mm. wider Christian community. Mm. And if it's a miserable psalm and you're happy, well, you're being asked to pray alongside those who are miserable today. And so I said to these middle school kids, I, I just put it to them. I said, what, what would it be like to explore this? What if you got up in the morning and you prayed a psalm, the next psalm? Um, and it, and it's, it seems like the person in the psalm is afraid. And you're not afraid. But you sit down and you think, well, we've got a math test, test today. Who in the class is really afraid of the math, math test? right? Or, or who might be getting bullied or whatever? And, and you actually think about who in your school needs you to pray alongside them because yeah. they're feeling afraid. And what if you got up on the morning when you are feeling afraid and you knew that because that psalm had come up this morning, that there's lots of other people in your school community who are praying alongside you this morning. What would that be like instead of just praying about your own feelings and what's inside your own head and what you want to happen today? And they all thought this was a great idea and they wanted to try it. Um, so I haven't heard back from them as to how that went, but uh, but I was quite struck that you know middle school kids were perfectly capable of thinking that through and thinking that maybe prayer is not just about me and letting me mm-hmm. like, letting God know my own interior monologue. Mm. Um, but it's, it's about actually joining into something, in with something that connects us. So I think even the way we handle prayer, the way we handle scripture, um, the way we organize classrooms, the way we organize homework. Um, I'm, I'm aware that I talked for a few minutes, but I'll try and throw in really quickly. Mm-hmm. I've worked with a few schools on how do you design homeworks that get students into relational interactions with adults in their lives rather than sending them to their room with a, lap- with a laptop or a, or a mm. worksheet? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you design homeworks that create dialogues with parents, that create dialogues with grandparents, that create mm. dialogues with community members? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen, heard some really great stories back out of that um, as to the impact on, on family life. And again, it's, it's thinking about schoolwork in the context of community rather than just in the context of collecting grades. Yeah, that's awesome. I have definitely, in response to that, from I think, would you visited us in uh, 2019 with the Inspire Ed Conference? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I took some of those practices and I was teaching a, a course called Theory of Knowledge, uh, philosophically based, uh, the IB context, and uh, taught my students about how to interview and how to engage in that activity of listening and what deep listening actually looks like. And it was pretty unbelievable the kind of stories that came out and the way that they processed other people's perspectives and showed so, so much empathy. And so I think mm-hmm. you've invited us to think about these ways of being kind of like Christ's disciples, followers and, mm-hmm. and listeners of the word and doers of the word and um, how we do that individually in our classes and as our community. So would love to, because um, I think hopefully we'll invite our, our school community to tune into this conversation here and we'll have teachers listening that are thinking about um, Christian faith-informed practice. But um, to throw this over to Brenda, in terms of your own reflections, um, what encouragement would you share as a classroom teacher, as an administrator, um, as someone who's been a part of this community, and um, what encouragement would you have as we think about Christian teaching practice uh, instructionally? Uh, one of the, thing, the things that stands out to me, even listening to you speak and the examples that you give, is that I think sometimes teachers feel this tension between um, teaching like character and faith and then also the rigors of I need to teach numeracy and reading levels. Um, but I think what you make really clear and is an encouragement for us, it's not this or that, it's both and. And that they exist actually most richly together, that good learning comes from had those formational learning experiences and it doesn't sacrifice learning about the scientific process or how to divide fractions or fill in the blank. And so as encouragement to teachers that um, even just to hear those examples, to get um, our ideas as teams, how can we build those formational learning experiences where we get to meet our curricular targets, but do it in authentic and meaningful ways would probably be the big thing that stands out to me. And I'm not sure if you have um, 
anything to add or, or thoughts or encouragements for our teachers as they think about that and what that looks like in their grade level context and subject context? Yeah, I agree with a few of the things I said. It doesn't have to be instant. If you don't get an answer by the end of the weekend, it's okay. Um, and like what you're doing right now is probably not profoundly harmful. Um, but there are also pathways to something that might be more glorious. Um, mm. And uh, as you continue to explore those together, right, when, when you find it, it will enable you to teach disciplinary content as well as investing in your students' formation, as well as living with integrity in, in terms of your own commitment. That's sort of, that's what we're looking for here. Um, but it, it doesn't have to be something that's kind of forced into a small box. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're looking for authentic connections. Um, and, and the one thing I would add at this point is to say you have more cultural power than you think you have. Um, that, that keeps coming home to me in different ways. Um, a few years ago, I was, I was doing some professional development with a school and talking to the teachers about the thing I just mentioned about designing homeworks that create relationships uh, and create dialogue. And two days after I did the training, I had an email from a parent in that school community, um, not someone I'd had any prior contact with, uh, who looked me up and said, I don't know what you did with our teachers on Tuesday, but it's already had a positive impact on our family life. Um, and I thought, you know, here we go, professional development through teachers into families, and now this family is doing better because of something that the teacher did. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, research I've done recently where I've, got, I've been, been privileged to sit in focus groups with students and listening how often they quote their teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and even when they say, you know, Mr. So-and-so always says to, to do this, and I know that I don't manage to do it, but I know that that's what he wants. And even when they knew they were failing, mm -hmm. they were still quoting what their teachers wanted. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, you have more cultural power than you think you do. So take responsibility together for how you're using that power um, and what kind of difference you're making. And uh, don't do so out of a place of fear or out of a place of desperately trying to make awkward things fit, um, but just out of this, this, this long-term process of sanctification of growing into who you're called to be. Awesome, thanks. Well, that's great advice. Well, thank you, Dr. Smith. We really appreciate you joining us today and just your great words and wisdom that you've shared. We really appreciate that. And to our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. And we also want to remind you that if you have any concerns, you can contact us at podcasts at lyingmechristian.com. Thanks for tuning in. Mm -hmm.